This is your host, Wes Dodson. You're listening to the Texas Order Podcast. I want to apologize today for the audio quality on this podcast because I was speaking through my Bluetooth headset and not my microphone, so the audio is a bit muddy. Uh, But if you power through it, it was a fantastic conversation with Mr. Neil Dykeman. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and I hope that you go back and listen to the other fantastic audio productions that we have here at the Texas Order. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, it can be a little bit confusing looking from the stream because they're all dated the same. That is because SoundCloud uh, will not let me go back and predate them. So if you go back and listen to some of the podcasts from previous uh, episodes, those are you know last year. But from here on out, the podcast will be in correct date format. I hope that you enjoy this audio production from the Texas Order. I hope you join us on Tuesday at 6 p.m. in GAR 0.102, where we will be hosting Mark Tippett and Neil Dykeman, both Libertarian candidates for office in Texas. Again, this is your host, Wes Dodson. I hope you enjoy the following podcast. Thank you. All righty, folks. This is Wes Dodson. You are listening to the Texas Order podcast. On the phone with me, I have Mr. Neil Dykeman, the Libertarian Party candidate for the Texas Senate race. Mr. Dykeman, how are you doing today? I'm doing terrific. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, well, thank you very much for coming on the show. As you guys are probably aware, the Texas Order is going to be having an event on Tuesday with Mr. Dykeman and Mark Tippett, both Libertarian candidates for office in Texas. But I want to start today by um, talking to Mr. Dykeman and just getting a brief background of yourself and why it is you're running for this race. Sure, sure. So my name's Neil Dykeman. I'm the Libertarian nominee for the United States Senate in Texas in 2018, running against Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman O'Rourke. You know, look, I'm a sixth-generation Texan. You know, I lived, I was born and raised in Houston, spent a brief stint out in California before coming home to Texas to raise family. Uh, I've got a three and a five-year-old, and they're they're my cause. They're why I'm running here. Uh, frankly, after coming out of the last election cycle, got frustrated with two things. Number one is the, the the tremendous lack of choice on our ballots. In 2018, we've got one out of four races that don't even have a single choice, and most of the races, the uh, in the primary and the general election, they're they're basically safe seats, and this isn't the way the world's supposed to work. And the second. Uh, I got tired of elected officials kicking the can down the road to my five-year-old and my three-year-old. You know, we're running up debts that we have not seen since World War II. We're still not working on core issues like immigration, yeah, and we still haven't gotten health care reform fixed. In 2018, it's still tied to your tied to your job by a bad 1940s tax deal. Yeah, and somebody's got to stand up. Life and politics is a participation sport. Yeah, it's it's not a spectator sport. If you want to make change, you have to get in the game and actually do something about it. And I need to make sure that I spend my time trying to leave the world a better place for my daughters. And when they grow up, they know they know that that's where I spent my time and energy. Otherwise, I'd just be spending the time home back on my businesses or home with them. Professionally, I started off in finance and oil and gas. You know, spent a decent chunk of my career in clean tech and renewable energy. Actually, founded seven tech startups. You know, sandwiched between you know, uh, two of the largest companies in, in working for two of the largest companies in the world. 
Yeah, I'm uh, grew up in Houston, as I said. Yeah, at uh, go to Spring Branch Presbyterian Church, which my grandfather was a charter member of back in the 1950s. Yeah, I understand Texas. I understand ag. I understand energy and tech. Yeah, and I understand the future of energy. Yeah, I'm the right guy for this job. And so you talk about the you know need for democratic participation, and that's something that I think is especially pertinent to college students because historically young voters have been amongst the lowest participators in democracy and voting, especially down ballot. So can you talk a little bit about how you see your race affecting down ballot, both for Libertarian Party members, but just for uh, democratic participation as a whole? You know, the uh, the top of the ticket matters. And whether or not we win, we've now been, you know, had about half a dozen major media sources from Texas Monthly to the Texas Tribune, the Dallas Morning News, Capitol Tonight, yeah, they're in, they're in Austin, all commenting and questioning whether our voters you know, will be the ones that decide the race. The race is going to be tight enough that it will be libertarians that choose who makes the U.S. Senate. So regardless of whether I win, we're going to have an impact this year. You know, and, and that's important because it changes the narratives. For too long, our Republican and Democratic colleagues have basically gerrymandered the world until we've got maybe 3 to 5% of the total seats that are, that are in play. The rest are safe. And so they fight out in their primary and they talk to their own little bases, but they ignore you and I in the middle. And they leave a lot of disenfranchised voters who just don't like you know, the options that come out of the primary system. You know, the Libertarians are one of the few parties. We're the largest third party in the United States. We've you know, been around for 50 years and uh, you know, been on the ballot in Texas for decades. And we're one of the few parties actively working to ensure there is true voter choice. But it's, it's on us to run great candidates. And in a race as noisy and as expensive as the U.S. Senate race, you know, it's on someone like me to, to, to get out there and carry a message about issues like immigration and debt, student loans, you know, um, you know, health care reform, issues that people aren't talking about right now, and help drive and make some change. That being said, we've got a, we've got a pretty good slate of down ballot candidates. We're running over, over a hundred candidates in, in, for various offices from Justice of the Peace in, in McLennan County in Waco all the way up to Governor in the, in, in the, in Texas this year. So we're, we're doing our part. But what it really boils down to is voters need to send a message. You know, this isn't about me and my campaign. It's actually about voters spending the, the time and making the decision that they're not just going to vote for the lesser of two evils anymore. They want true change. They want choice on the ballot. They're not going to just let our, our large, our main large parties talk to their, their bases in the primaries. We're going to start changing races in the general election from the middle with issues that cross over party lines. That's actually why the libertarians, you know, pull from both sides almost equally because our issues, our issues don't, don't respect, you know, a conservative liberal, you know, spectrum. Our issues come from all across that spectrum. Yeah, so you talk about the difference between libertarian and Republican and Democratic issues. So that's one of the big questions I think a lot of libertarian candidates will get is, you know, why not Republican? Why not Democratic? What are the defining issues or potentially just characteristics of a libertarian candidate that differ them or differentiate them from, you know, say a better O'Rourke or, or a Ted Cruz? So I, I think and, and for college students, I've put this a couple of, had this question a lot. And, and, I, and I think, you know, one simple way to, to look at it, you as a voter should not have to choose between fiscal responsibility and tolerance. 
just as an example. You shouldn't have to choose between you know, social issues, whether whether it's you know, gay marriage or marijuana or you know, uh, you know, or, or pro-choice, and somebody that is not going to spend your money into oblivion and run up debts you can't count. You know, of course, in today's world, our Republican Party of, of fiscal responsibility has has lost that mantle, and both parties have ended up becoming a pro-war party. You know, for two decades, regardless of who was in control. You know, we just keep fighting foreign wars, pouring treasure and the, the talents and lives of our of our next generation and our moral authority into wars overseas. So we no longer have a, a party that actually you know, believes that we shouldn't be out there fighting wars. We no longer have a party that will manage our money fiscally, our, our, our fiscal budgets and our money responsibly, regardless of how much you want to spend or where you want to spend it. Yeah, so the, the coalitions we have just aren't very good anymore. They force bad choices from the voters, and that's why voters don't show up. Yeah, and I think that correlates pretty strongly with some, some stuff that we've been seeing in terms of college students becoming increasingly independent. Um, some recent surveys have shown something around 33% not identifying with any party. And I want to potentially get your thoughts on how partisanship and the kind of new tribalism of politics is affecting young voters. Do you think it's turning them off of politics? Do you think it's potentially getting them more engaged? Where do you see partisanship in national politics as a either a positive or negative force? I see partisanship as you know, unabashedly and you know, uh, unadulterated evil. You know, this is not the way the world is meant to work. In fact, our original framers did not intend for there to be political parties, and they just grew up because well, they're an effective way of aggregating power. But this isn't the way the world's supposed to work. And it's certainly not supposed to work that you go into a, a, a Supreme Court nominee hearing, for example, and the vote divides neatly along party lines. When you see votes dividing along party lines, you know there's a problem because the world simply isn't that black and white. Yeah, and in a polarized world, whether in the U.S. Senate, you see for the last you know, four or five weeks, we've been basically talking about nothing but what three senators are going to do. Because in a polarized world, the people in the middle hold all the leverage. And that's not just the senators. That's the voters. You know, there's a very small slice of voters that are making, making the calls this year because they're the ones who think independent and who cross party lines to pick the candidate who best represents them. You know, but in order to break this, this partisanship, what we need to do as voters and as Texans, we need to start doing what I call the stack rank. Take all my policies. I don't want you to vote for me because I'm a libertarian. I don't want you to pull the straight party ticket for libertarians or Republicans or Democrats. I want you to go and I want you to look at my policies from top to bottom. I want you to look at all of my competitors, each of my competitors' policies, all of them from top to bottom. No more single-issue votes. And I want you to stack rank them and decide how you think who you think has the most common ground with you. And I promise you, more of Texas has more common ground with me than with either Ted Cruz or Congressman O'Rourke. And that is especially true of our next generation, who does not deserve to have the can kicked down to them. You know, and once you do that, if you start voting for you know, the, the policy rank, the stack rank that fits with you, voting for your common ground as opposed to voting for a single issue or voting for a label, we're going to change the world. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you talk about this notion of policy-based politics because I think, you know, for a lot of college students, they've been constantly bombarded both from the left and the right 
about messages of get out the base, get out the vote, get out your friends who are Democratic to vote. You know, we see this with podcasts like Pod Save America or um, other podcasts like the Ben Shapiro show, where it's constantly a message to the base. And so when we're looking at that, you know, college students have a lot of, you know, time pressured activities going on. They've got, you know, essays, they've got assignments that are constantly, you know, weighing upon them. And so, you know, for, for a college student that doesn't have time to look down ballot or think they don't have time to look down ballot, what would your suggestions be for someone like that who, you know, doesn't feel like they can put in the requisite you know, time to do their research. Do you think they should still vote? What's the, you know, policy goal or what's the, the action goal that they should be looking at? Look, there are voter guides, you know, on, you know, scattered throughout the web. Some of them big like the League of Women Voters. Yeah, some of them small and very, very, you know, and specific to very, very, you know, a small set of issues. Yeah, you know, do your research. It's not that hard. There's a handful of, you know, counties where you got, you know, because we elect a lot of judges and a lot of, and a lot of commissions, you know, there's, there's some, some ballots that are pretty long, but that's not insurmountable. It's not even as hard as the quiz you're going to take next Wednesday. You know, it just isn't. And it's going to take you less time to research it than you'll spend studying for that test. You know, so why, once every two years, can you not spend the time doing it? You know, quite frankly, voting for a label is a really, really bad way of doing it. Because here's what, ha here's what happens, and, and you're absolutely right. You get bombarded with... You know, vote for my party, vote for my party, vote for my party. You know, and what, and then you get bombarded with the issue, the segmented targeted marketing on the issue that they think will turn you. And you realize that senator, that congressman, that representative is only going to spend 5% of their time on that issue because it's only one of 20, 30 issues that are going to matter and are going to come up and be debated about. And you basically gave them your vote for 5% of their time without thinking just on a label. That's what folks are doing, and I get this every single day. Nasty, vitriolic, mean, you know, uh, mean-spirited comments, requests to drop out, you know, statements that I'm harming the world because I'm taking votes from their candidate. Well, it's not their candidate's votes. These aren't Democratic votes. They're not Republican votes. They're not Libertarian votes. They're your votes, and they will always be your votes. But they're going to keep acting like they're theirs until you change your actions. So it's not that hard you know, to come up with a, with, with a policy stack rank. It, it, it's just not. Yeah, and I, I think this is something that we've been talking about a lot at the Texas Order is looking at the psychological, you know, value, the kind of group uh, team-based benefits that individuals place on, you know, participating in that type of partisanship. Uh, you know, the, either partisan rhetoric, partisan voting, there's a lot of kind of wellness or, or group psychology benefits that people derive. And I think that's part of why we see, you know, especially in, in young voters who, you know, are, are participating every day, hanging out in groups that tend to be pretty homogenized in terms of their political views. So how do you interject an emotionally resonant message from a libertarian standpoint to college voters? How do you get them to talk about libertarianism and classical liberal ideals in a way that approximates that kind of, um, you know, either Democratic or Republican group psychology benefit, or is that something you just shouldn't even so, be attempting to do? Let's let's put it, let's put it this way: you know, uh, college students will vote at a fraction of the rate that any other demographic, age demographic, will vote at. 
Mm-hmm. But I'm spending, we've got close to 20 colleges we're speaking at. In fact, a decent chunk of the people we'll speak to won't even be registered to vote. Right? But we're still doing it because it matters. Yes. I'm not asking you for your vote. I'm asking for the opportunity to earn it. I'm not asking you to vote for me as a libertarian. I'm asking you to vote for the policies and the things that I believe in and for my track record and what I will do for you and what I will do for the country. And I can promise you there will be issues you just don't like what I say. You don't like what I'm what I'm about. That's okay. That's why I want you to go through the full stack rank. I want you to find not the places where we differ. Find the common ground and then pull the trigger for the candidate with the most common ground with you. And if I don't do the job next time, then send me home. I'm not going to be a career politician. There shouldn't be a career ladder ever for politicians. This isn't this isn't like a job or a profession where you yeah, you start at the bottom and work your way up. That's not the way it works, right? This right. is about governing America the right way, about taking care of you know, this generation and the next, about stewardship and service. And I will not be here in 20 years. I won't be one of these 85-year-old people still trying to hang on to, to, to power with my staff doing all the work because I'm basically you know, uh, uh, you know, past my prime. No, I'm going to come in, I'm going to do my job, and I'm going to go home. And if you don't like the job I'm doing, send me home early. Yeah, and so we talk about these policy issues. And I, I want to you know, kind of go through a bit of potentially your top three policy issues that you think are affecting Texas as a whole and then young voters specifically. I think that there are a lot of um, conversations about immigration that are going on specific to college students, but in Texas, certainly this is an issue that has a lot of stakeholders, uh, both down the border and, you know, up in North Texas. So could you kind of outline your, you know, positions on immigration and then talk about how you think those are the best for Texas going forward? So immigration is an issue that has been what we're literally still talking about the same way, with the same fixes and the same concerns that we were talking about when I started voting. And unless I'm a little older than you. Right? <laughs> so it, it literally nothing's been done in two decades. This is an issue where the grand bargain of, yeah, uh, of solid enforcement of our laws and more immigration and more legal immigration and pathways for folks to come work and then go home and not jump on the citizenship track. This is an issue where that grand, grand bargain has been on the table since the 90s. And our two main political parties don't want to do it. They don't want to spend the capital. Maybe it's because the Democrats like dragging the Republicans through the mud on it, and the Republicans think their best play is, yeah, is simply to stonewall and wait it out. But yeah, this is not yeah, an issue. We Our current policy set doesn't work for the right. It doesn't work for the left. It doesn't work for people that are running through the immigration system now, and it doesn't work for our economy. Our immigration policies don't fit with what we need for trade, and what we need you know, to, to run our economy. We're, we're, and I was down at the border this last week in Presidio, which is probably the smallest port of entry, all of 5,000 people along the entire Texas and maybe the entire, you know, the entire border. And you know, what I see there is I see factories on the south side of the border, farms on the south side of the border, because policies like minimum wage that have been, you know, uh, uh, and immigration have, have chopped the labor force that used to 200 years ago or 100 years ago or 50 or even two decades ago would move back and forth across the border. The ag in this town in that part of Texas is dead, right? Because we put a bunch of arbitrary borders in the middle. 
Yeah, we've I've got the local development guy complaining that yeah post uh, yeah post drug war and post yeah and and and, and post nine eleven yeah you can't get trucks across there in less than two hours anymore. Yeah, that they they physically search every single big rig that rolls across, which means that port doesn't get yeah doesn't get the trade. People go a different route. I met two families, American families, Hispanic descent, but American families living in Presidio who had businesses right across the border. Why? Because there's 40,000 people yeah, uh, uh, 300 yards away that can't come across to shop. So they live in the U.S. and they run their business there because they can't set one up in a town that small. This is a community that's been around since 1683 and what we did was chop it in half and kill our side of the border. This is a silly policy. We have our immigration policies are intertwined with our trade policies. We're now slapping tariffs at the border in order to keep product coming back because we've you know, reduced the labor flow and left the markets over there that we can't access. These things, this is, needs to be a holistic plan to deal with federal policy, right? We've got a minimum federal minimum wage which looks real cheap up in New York City or maybe even maybe even Austin or San Francisco, but on the border it makes no sense, absolute no sense whatsoever. We've hammered our ag industry by cutting yeah, the labor force that used to do all of our ag work. Yeah, and yet we think our policy works. What we saw this year that got us talking about it, DACA and the separation of children at the borders, this is simply yeah, symptoms of two decades of bad policies with quota systems that don't fit with what we need. We haven't changed the demand profile and we keep choking off supply in very odd ways and we end up with really bad outcomes that just hurt families. We got to stop that. And, and look, by the time we're done with comprehensive immigration reform, you're probably not going to be happy with it. It's not going to be perfect. If this is a hard question, right? But we still got to get it done. Right. I mean, and I think to you know potentially address one uh, counter argument against that, there's a lot of conversation about. Immigration as a law and order question. You either have a border and have laws, and this is very similar to the way that President Trump frames the issue as a black and white of either, either having laws and a border or having no borders and therefore just, undercutting just the laws. So could you respond just to that a little bit? You have different laws on this side of the border than the South or the, or this side of the border than, than the Canadian border. Yeah, it doesn't mean you can't do trade and have communities and work across it. Yeah, well, this, this isn't about giving up on our, our sovereignty. And yeah, look, we've exacerbated our immigration question with, with entitlement programs which just don't quite fit with our immigration and our trade needs, right? And uh, um, then we've done things like yeah, push a, yeah, a five-decade drug war, which is a complete and abject failure. Don't, don't care what your stance on, on marijuana is. Right. The drug war has been a failure. We're, we're five decades later and you're still fighting it. You're doing something wrong, son. It's not working. Yeah. So and this this policy has managed to push profit centers into drug cartels and into criminal organizations. This policy hasn't changed the demand. All it does is you know, cause us to have to go harden a border and yeah you know, and uh, and and chop and chop communities in half, right? And then drive up load on our criminal justice system. So we complain about it again. You know, you realize the vast majority of our of our of our border issues, yeah, you know, and 
and our justice system is basically taken up with it's either drugs or or immigration, right? right. Traffic. Yeah, you know, that that's what's the load on our on our criminal justice system. That's what our taxes go to, and we've ended up with the highest incarceration rate in the world for any developed country. Do you think that really makes sense? And do you think that doesn't have something to do with a whole series of policies that interact badly because Congress is is looking at them in each little silos, silos, and then yeah, and then, and then fighting about them on emotional issues as opposed to building an actual good functioning system? Yeah, I mean, I think the the two issues are certainly intertwined deeply, and you've got um, – you know, your fellow, uh, running, uh, you know, Congressman Beto O'Rourke running on a, a stance of legalizing marijuana, but not legal, legalizing the rest of the kind of, uh, scheduled drugs. And so, um, so Congressman O'Rourke has been in Congress for six years. He has done zero on that issue, just like every other issue. The guy talks a game. He's like Ted. He talks a game, but they've literally accomplished nothing. All they do is finger point all day long. Yeah, and then run for the next office. That's where they spend their time. Right, and and so I want to get your response to the reason potentially why just you know marijuana legalization might not be enough of a solution to you know fix the ails. Because I think a lot of college students um, are behind this notion of marijuana legalization or decriminalization, what have you. But when we talk about harder drugs, when we talk about the kind of rest of the cornucopia of drugs, um, you know, opiates, heroin, cocaine even, I think uh, the the Overton window of that, you know, doesn't really allow for the conversation of legalization. So could you potentially talk about why broader legalization or decriminalization is, you know, a necessary solution to both the, you know, issue on marijuana, but as well as the kind of uh, over-criminalization and um, over-incarceration issue writ large? So I'm... At, at heart, I'm kind of two things. Number number one, yeah, I believe in limited government in all aspects of your life. And more importantly, I believe in local government whenever you're going to have government. You do things at the federal level only if you they they are only if we've given the federal government the right constitutionally one to do it. And number two, if it can't be done at the state or local level, you do it at the lowest level possible always. Right? Yeah, that's that's number one. And uh, um, number two, I'm a pragmatist. After five decades, your policy isn't working. It's time to try something else. So I don't care whether you're a strong law and order guy, yeah, or yeah, you believe it should be every drug should be 100% legal. Yeah. Either way, you got to find common ground that what we've got is a failure that is driving profits to criminal organizations, yeah, and throwing people in jail that keep them from getting jobs in a time when we need every person we can in the labor force, right, and driving up taxes on law enforcement for those same so those same issues. Libertarians don't believe in setting laws that probably shouldn't be on the books that just cause higher criminal justice and higher tax load and higher incarceration rates and hammer the economy. This doesn't make sense. So if you don't want to legalize drugs... You need to come up with a plan so that five decades from now, you and I aren't having the exact same conversation. Right. And it's you know interesting that you frame a lot of your responses to these issues in an economic standpoint. I'm sure that has to do with you know part of your business background. But I think increasingly conversations in younger voting circles um, tend to 
be framed less in economics and more in like an emotionalism or a, you know, a, a conversation about uh, identity. And so could you potentially talk about the need for a free market, the, the reasons that a free market works so well, because that is something that I think, you know, you look at poll numbers saying that something in the area of 44% of college students feel either warmly or potentially even strongly that um, socialism is a potentially, you know, optimal solution in America. And so could you respond to that from a free market standpoint, you know, and, and talk to college voters about the need for a free market system? So, look, yeah, um, the free market's never perfect, and it's at best it's choppy, but it's far and away the best system out there and the least cost alternative. But more importantly, what tends to happen in a, yeah, in, in a government-run system you tend to get scope creep. For example, the reason we've got, yeah, uh, we spend 600 billion on, on, on defense is the same reason you don't want to put a new big entitlement and safe and social safety net funded by the government run through your tax bill on. And is the same reason that you, yeah, uh, you, you don't want to run our healthcare the way we've been running it. Because once you get a system in place in a government where it's a power structure system, not a, yeah, and, and don't, never has to toe the line of market forces, it never comes out. So if you made a bad decision or if you didn't get it perfectly right, it's really, really hard and expensive to change, and decades later, we still deal with it. The drug war is one example. Defense, we're running a defense policy that's basically you know, um, uh, scope creep on scope creep on scope creep of yeah, a, of a bad domino theory policy from the early stages of the Cold War in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. But we can't get rid of it because there's no mechanism in government to roll it back. Worse, the farther up you get in government, the, the, the more centralized, the harder it is to roll back. It's much easier to roll something back locally where you can go and touch it than it is in Washington where they're thousands of miles away uh, and, uh, and your representative just doesn't have much time for you because they, they represent too many people. Yeah, so, but let, let's talk about one that I think hopefully will resonate with college students. So why... In, and, and most of you guys are probably still on, on either you know, your co- college or your parents' health care plans. But why, when you get out, why is your health care tied to your job? It's tied to your job because of a really dumb 1940s tax deal, where in the 40s, during World War II, the government was trying to put wage controls, yeah, so you couldn't yeah, uh, go and jack up prices for labor while we were at the war effort. The short-term thing. Right? And you and I can argue about whether that was good or bad, but they did it. And then the large corporations, which were heavily unionized at the time and usually paid more than small businesses, you know, they said, hang on, hang on. Uh, how am I going to keep small businesses from taking my employees if we all got to pay the same? And so the first thing that, um, that, the, that the government did was they said, okay, uh, we got this new thing called health insurance, which doesn't cost very much now because it's brand new. It doesn't cover very much in the and and the tax rates are really low, but we'll let all the corporations deduct all their their medical you know, expenses for their employees without the employee having to call that income. And we're still addicted to that plan 70 years later. In fact, that grew up a whole series of insurance companies who stopped selling to you, and they started selling to companies. And then, because of that same tax deal, then those insurance companies to compete with each other, they would go and sign up doctors and hospitals in a private network. You've heard the network concept. Well, why does the network exist? Because 
Yeah, the insurance companies signed up to it to compete because insurance is just insurance. It's a risk pool. It shouldn't cost any different. Yeah, so they'd go compete on a better network. And what they're doing is then allowing your doctor to effectively, through a government program, reach all the way into your into in into your paycheck and pull their revenues straight out of their paycheck because of a bad tax deal. So then we launched a a you know, about a decade before that we launched our, our Medicare program. Yeah, and which does the exact same thing, except in that case, they don't even go to the employer. They go to the employer and tell them the government's going to pull that out and run it through an insurance system and pay your doctor. And so we end up with a system where the doctor doesn't work for you, the health insurance doesn't work for you, nobody works for you, and that's why our system doesn't work. What we need to do, and, and once that system's in place, 75 years ago, remember, this was supposed to be a short-term, couple-year wartime deal that never went away and has changed and screwed up our entire healthcare system, addicted these guys to this. So take healthcare, for example, as a concept, as, as an industry. Every other tech industry in the world, and don't kid yourself, healthcare is a technology-based industry. Every right, right. other tech industry is deflationary in cost. In, not price, in cost. Your, your phones cost less, and your TV and your tech cost less this year than it did five years ago. And you get more for it. But somehow healthcare prices and costs rise at twice the growth rate of the entire economy for decades? No. It's because we don't have a free market running them. We have a really, uh, a, a nasty little, which originally was a small kink in the system from way back when. If we had, for example, healthcare deflationary, just like the rest of uh, you know, the tech industries, covering everybody's easy. But when it's inflationary at twice the uh, the, the rate of, of GDP growth, eventually you bankrupt. In fact, there was an article on 538, the, the big ESPN blog, you know, uh, a couple of days ago, saying that even people who are getting their their uh, their healthcare through their employer are now beginning to worry about costs because what these programs do, whether it's our tax subsidized four payer insurance program or Medicare or a single payer program, what they do is they try and restrict price, but they don't address cost. Restricting price doesn't do a damn thing for cost. And when you restrict price and you don't address cost, what happens is you either lose service or you use quality, lose quality. And eventually, if you don't restrict costs, we see what happened on the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, the costs keep going up, and eventually prices have to react because yeah, you can't restrict service and quality anymore. So they have to keep passing them through in essentially a cost-plus manner. Small kinks in the system, small pieces of system design at the government level have really bad outsized effects decades later. It's not very predictable. It's not like you can figure it out. In the free market, the system will self-balance and will fix itself because you just won't be able to sell product. But in a system where it's all run through the, uh, the a government power structure, which is based on a voting structure, or all run through you know, a tax you know, system into your in, into your paycheck, those those can't balance out. So even small mistakes you end up paying for decades later, and that's true of you know, defense policy. It's true of the drug war. Yeah, it's uh, um, and 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 I understand why they started the drug war, right? Yeah, it looked around and same reason we're fighting the opioids crisis. You looked around and said, "What's happening? People's not good. Let's see if we can fix it." But what they did was cause five decades of problems. 
I understand why these guys did the domino theory you know, in our defense policy in the 50s. They were afraid the world was going communist and you had to fight them in, in every country. But what we've done is we've ended up now with 85 countries with U.S. military bases in them for no reason that I can see and decades of foreign wars. Yeah, so, that, does, does that make sense? Yeah, I, and I think it's interesting that I've been, I've been listening to this and, you know, been – and I should say that I'm kind of come from a classical liberal position myself, but I keep hearing the, the, you know, echoing voice of my co-host. And I think his response to this would be potentially issues about information transparency. When we look at markets and when we look at healthcare and, you know, tech, and I know that you've got a tech background, a lot of calls from even some, you know, free market people on the libertarian side are talking about the role of government in increasing the transparency of information. So that's, that's a yeah. very different question. You're right. One of the things I've called for, and, and we actually just put out the video on neildeichman.com a uh, couple of days ago, is a National Privacy Protection Act you know, to help define rules of the road in a digital age where privacy and data are basically the frontier issue because we're still running off, off laws that were wrote, written before the Internet was you know, uh, of any size or note at all. Yeah, right, so, I mean, we talk about, you know, scope creep. How do you stop scope creep, you know, when you've got a regulatory board or something that is responsible for the transparency issues there? How do you stop scope creep? Because what we're seeing in Europe is that what starts as a transparency measure, what starts as potentially a privacy measure, those regulatory boards will start to increase the compliance cost of those policies to such that it protects market positions for monopoly companies. And so how do you stop the kind of transparency regulatory um, aspects of a free market system from you know squashing innovation, squashing new growth, and protecting monopoly so positions. There's a number of tools, and, and, and nothing's perfect here, right? You know, in a system where it's basically you know based on who gets votes and gets the office, they've all got vested interests. And right. but what, but so you got to be very careful about system design. Of the principles to keep in mind, one is yeah, you know, libertarians aren't saying no government. Libertarians usually say, I'd rather a local government if I can get away with it on anything possible, right? And so, so take that minimum wage example where the federal minimum wage is hammering Presidio, Texas, but is right. irrelevant in San Francisco. That, that's just a, a simple example yeah. Um, uh, because the cost of livings are, 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 are so different. So one, local, local whenever you can, state whenever whenever you can. Second, yeah, um, yeah. We need, you need to get, you know, you need to have programs. It's kind of, yeah, um, uh, try and buy, so to speak, right? Maybe we end up need the you know, laws that look like they're going to be longer term entitlement type programs and maybe entitlements pejorative here, but programs that are going to be structural should have a much higher hurdle on passage than programs that are discrete or, you know, or, or fast term, right? Right. Um, as the Presbyterians say, you should have more discernment on ones like that because you're going to live with them longer. Then, if you look at a program, the, the question of you know, how do we fix the solution ought to go with, well, how do we get out of this bill if we're wrong? Because half the time we're going to be wrong. This is, uh, you know, life's just not you know, a world of perfect certainty. And, and the, the one of the areas I use, I use on that one is, is gun control. Mm -hmm. and libertarians are... are Pretty solidly Second Amendment proponents. I'm a Second Amendment proponent for the following reason. Yeah, our, if you go read the Federalist Papers, you'll realize our founding fathers were more afraid of standing armies 
and big defense budgets, you know, than they were crime. You know, and they expected you to be accountable and responsible, but they also expected to have an armed citizenry as the final arbiter of protections of our liberties. Right? And I don't, I think it's, I think that's one of the uniquenesses of America that should never be messed with. However, we're now sitting in a world where we've got school shootings and mass shootings that frankly shouldn't happen. Yeah, but they are. And if I had a silver bullet answer for them, and every politician wants to give you a silver bullet answer, we'd be doing nothing but talking about that issue. Unfortunately, there probably isn't. This is probably something that we got to come together and figure out why portions of our you know, of our society, why people get so disenchanted, so disenfranchised, feel so left out that they would resort to violence that's completely unconscionable. You know, we've got to figure that out. But what's going to happen if we say, yep, yeah, let's slap some more gun laws on? It'll fix it. And we find out six months later there's another shooting the gun law wasn't the silver bullet. Then what are you going to do? You can't unwind that gun law easily. You just eroded the Second Amendment for no reason. And we saw that in Florida when yeah, the, the tech that was used was shotguns and revolvers. It's 200-year-old technology. What's going to happen when we realize that cyber and drones are the next, yeah, the next weapon of choice? Our military isn't worried about yeah, assault rifles anymore. Yeah, they're, worried, they're worried about yeah, massive cyber attacks. And we're going to see that flow throughout? What's going to happen when we realize that our silver bullet doesn't work? And that's what you need to ask yourself when you ask questions you know, about, and, and socialism is a pejorative, so when you ask questions about putting in place laws that are with good intentions meant to help a lot of people, what if you're not perfectly right? How are you going to unwind it? How are you going to reverse it? How are you going to fix it? How are you going to adjust it? Because we've got a really bad track record of not being able to get rid of bad laws and not being able to adjust them because once they're there, yeah, somebody's got a vested interest in keeping them there. And that right. healthcare and defense, drugs, yeah, guns, everything. The more yeah, and, and the higher the, the, the hurdle we put for something that's going to be long-term, the better. Maybe every law needs to come with a 10-year sunset. Mm. Just write it in there. Make people re-vote on it. I don't know, but we got to do. You got to think of the tools that keep you from having this multi-decade problem from things that. And you take that tax deal in the 1940s that that has caused us all this pain on healthcare costs. I guarantee you, no senator or congressman in 1943 had any idea this was going to addict an entire industry to it for seven decades, but it did. Yeah, well, and it's. You know, we keep framing these issues as ones that need to be addressed in the democratic system, ones that can in part be solved by increased participation. But I think one interesting, you know, opinion that we've been seeing from a libertarian, Brian Kaplan, the economist, is the idea of, you know, aggregate errors, you know, you know these yes. systematic misunderstandings that voters make when, especially he looks at the economy and talks about how anti-immigration, anti-market bias, you know, cause voters to miscalculate, you know, in mass such that we get bad outcomes. But when we look at these issues, I think a lot of what we're seeing is that potentially voter ignorance could be at play here. And so how do we, you know, as a nation look at these issues? Do we, you know, ask, should these issues be, you know, areas for government intervention at all? Do we try to decrease, devolve things down to the market level? Or are we really focused on voter education and that, 
you know, being a segue into talking about the education system writ large. Well, you know, I mean, voter education obviously matters, but I, I don't think voters are dumb. I don't mm-hmm. think voters are ignorant. Yeah, I think voters don't all, always have the right conversations. And I think, by and large, most people in life, they try and do the right thing. It's good intentions that get us into these problems. Yeah, and I think the, what, one of the challenges we see in, we see in government all the time, yeah, we, we put band-aids. So if you think of a manufacturing system, you got machine A and machine B and machine C and the, and the, 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 the raw materials flow into A and then you do a process and it keeps going. Well, without machine C, what you're seeing is some defects or some problems, right? First thing you do is metric that. And then in a manufacturing system, you go back up to machine A or to those inputs and you start figuring out where the problem started, what's causing it, and you change that early in the process. What the government does, because it really never has the political capital to go adjust machine A or the inputs, or let alone get rid of machine B and just go straight from A to C if that's the right solution, it adds machine D and E and it starts putting band-aids on the back end. And then what you realize is this isn't a a one-line manufacturing plant. Yeah, trade, immigration, yeah, you know, uh, social security or, or uh, health care, all these issues, defense, the drug war, war on terror, they're all interconnected. And so small errors in one and the second and the third, they start compound to compound and interact. So I'm, I'm not against having a government. I just know one of them to remember our government works for me. And it's since it's real hard to fix problems once they get embedded into a government voting-based power structure or a commission-based power structure or unelected officials be even worse. Once it's, it's real hard to reverse course, you just have to have a real, real high hurdle before you start something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something that we see is, um, and especially, you know, worrisome or, or uh, ironic claim from individuals who are pro-big government is they talk about voter ignorance and the need for voter education and the need for an educational system to produce, you know, citizen voters that are aware. But part of the problem you know, of voter ignorance is the fact that the system is so complex because of all the additional things that we've added on. You know, you, know, you look at the recent immigration um, court case, that was all you know, decided and hinged on the interpretation of one line in a subparagraph of a bill. And so I, I think when we look at the education system, what are your proposals for something that produces voters that are capable of handling the complex world and the complex government that we have today? So I, I honestly, so we'll talk about education, but I don't, I don't think that's the problem with our, with our voting system. Mm. I think the problem with our voting system is for since about the 1930s, the two main parties, both of them, have worked very hard to gerrymander and reduce choice. So today, there's only a handful of races that are actually decided in the general election. Right. The vast majority are decided in primaries. Hell, my state rep usually runs unopposed and has for almost a decade, and he's in a safe Republican seat, and so he sits on a whole bunch of campaign cash to chill competition in the Republican primary because that's the only thing that could knock him out of office. Mm-hmm. This is not the way the world's supposed to work. What we need voters to do is start making our elected officials more afraid of the middle in the general election than they are of the extremes in their own primaries, and the system will sort out. We need no more gerrymandering, no more safe seats, every seat competitive. 
And part of that's on parties like the Libertarian Party running good candidates, and part of that's on voters saying enough is enough. I'm not going to sit out this race or vote for a yeah, the, the same choice. I'm going to send these guys a, a signal. Yeah, so I think that's much more important than voter education because, frankly, if you only have two choices and you think they're bad, both of them, are you really going to spend the time educating yourself? No. Yeah, you'll spend the time educating when you think there's a, a real difference and one choice is better than the other and you got to go figure it out. And if each party is simply working real hard to perpetuate itself in power as opposed to working on the issues individual by individual, yeah, then you, you see the same results over and over and over again. But let's talk about education since that's the question you actually asked. So my grandmother founded two schools, two little private you know, church schools, one down in the valley and, and one here in Houston. I went to that one up through eighth grade before switching to uh, going to public, you know, public high school. Um, uh, I, I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old that are just starting public high school, uh, public school right now. The five-year-old is, uh, is, is just starting kindergarten. And you know, I got to say, on one hand, um, she's two years ahead of where I was. She's just they're they're, they're doing great there. Whatever the, whatever those teachers are doing, they need to keep doing it. But yeah, um, uh, our educational system as a as a, a whole is un, is under pressure. My high school or my my school district is facing the you know, Robin Hood recapture program to the extent of what is now thirty percent of their of their entire revenues is is going back into the state general fund. Yeah, basically going to bankrupt. The school district over this, you know, something that used to be a de minimis amount. Um, and uh, what 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 I'd like to to submit, if you go into these schools now and you talk to teachers and you talk to principals, yeah, um, the only kid that's going, every class is different, every kid is different, every school is different, even within the same school district, and every school district is unique. And the only people who can actually deal with those differences and get my kid educated are her teacher. And that principal and that school board can't be set from Austin and Washington. So what we've done is we've started with good intentions, sent dollars up to Washington and Austin that then get sent back down to local schools. But they come with strings and standards. No child left behind, yeah, for example. Um, we have all these testing standards. And, and I get why you want to do standardized testing, but we now spend an inordinate amount of our administrative and teacher time trying to figure out and trying to meet standards that may or may not apply well to their district. And less and less time you know, and money working on actually teaching my kid. And you can see this in the, yeah, um, uh, in the stresses over bond issues. Yeah, and you can see this in, in, uh, uh, in, in where the money flows in a school district. Teacher salaries aren't going up and up and up matching the economy. But the overall costs are. Why? Yeah, and so it's a good intentions problem. We had good intentions of trying to centralize things and then give money back. But all it did was create yeah, um, kinks in a system that didn't work well, and you can't get rid of them. So now what are we going to do, throw more money at it? If you run the same more money, you keep increasing money, and you still run it through the same centralized system, it isn't going to work. Yeah, I wouldn't take a principal's job as an executive for anything in the world. They're, they can't change out the people. They can't affect their budget. They can't affect which kids they have, which parents. They can barely affect the curriculum. They've got virtually no tools. It's, it's got to be an awful job. You're, you're, you're hammerlocked. So if we want to fix a system like that, what we got to do is stop centralizing and provide more and more local control. Yeah, the, uh, the good intentions problem we see in other places, in, in, yeah, 
uh, I won't ask if you've got student loans, but the vast majority of, of students going through school do and will get out with student loans. So we have a, you know, and we all know college costs have been skyrocketing for the last several decades. Again, like healthcare, one of the few things that just dramatically outpaces the cost of, um, uh, of living and the, and the general mm -hmm. economy, right? So why? Well, yeah, we have in place, you know, federal grant and loan systems. And they were put in for good intentions because we want people to be able to go to college. We want people to be able to get an education. So, but if you look around inside your college, the teacher professor salaries have not kept pace with that increase in cost. You get out, your, your the salary you will make when you get out has not kept pace with that increase in cost. So somehow this good intentions program of making it easy for you to fund colleges, all of the value of that has accrued somewhere in the college administration educational system. Well, and imagine this. So we've got a system and um, that um, that should cost ten thousand bucks, and instead it cost you know the, you can get loans to pay twenty, and every college out there simply tries to bid up and get all that money. Well, how do they do? They got to compete by adding stuff for you. But then who gets stuck with the bill? You do. All good intentions, but a system that shouldn't function this way. And I'll give you a, a, a fun example. I'm a startup guy, and some number of years ago, we looked at setting up a university. And we were going to set up an online master's program, you know, a technical one. And I didn't, didn't pull the trigger on this business for a, for a couple of reasons, but our calculation was that it would cost about $2,000 in direct cost per student to produce a full master's program. I could price it at 10 and make all the money we wanted. And when you look at something like Georgia Tech, which came out with their uh, a couple of years back with their online you know, master's program for you know, uh, for computer science, seven grand one year, you see that we're right. Or when you look at Western Governors University, you know, uh, which was designed to try and attack this problem, you know, able to produce a ten thousand dollar college degree, you're right. The rest is overhead and profit for someone. Right. This is what happens. You take good intentions, centralize them and start to put standards and requirements and run cash up through multiple layers yeah, and subsidize things, you get long-term negative effects, collateral damage that you didn't realize, and the people who bear the brunt of that are usually the poorest in our society or the youngest in our society, maybe the oldest in our society, but it's not the people that are best able to bear that, that, that brunt. Right. And, you know, we, you talk about the cost of college and that being probably just a ticket tuition cost. But I think another thought that a lot of students considering college don't, you know, really look at is the lost wages from that system. Absolutely. So you talk about the, you know, role of either professional schools or, you know, mentorship, apprenticeship programs in either high school or at the college level that can really work to, you know, use those systems as a means of getting you know, economically disadvantaged individuals into the middle class as a means of reestablishing that healthy American middle class that we so, seem to have. You're absolutely true. Yeah, losing. Let, let's let's say that because of whatever reason, it takes you five years to get out instead of four, and it's taken most people five years to get out these days. Yeah, for a degree that I I did my degree in three years, and I could have graduated in two, partly because of AP classes, partly because I just took a lot of classes. Yeah, and um uh. But even that extra last year, 
you know, it costs you, you know, let's say you're going to make, you know, uh, 40 grand when you get out, not massive salary, but a really good salary. It just says, let's say that's your target, right? Which is probably not too far off the average starting salary in, in the U.S. these days. That's $40,000 that you just lost because it took you another year. Well, where in the colleges are they teaching you how to get out in two years or three years? What are they doing to help design that? They're not. They're trying to basically get more of that government subsidized loan money that they can dump on you, right? If they were trying yeah, it, to it. get out quick, they design their programs completely differently. They're not caring about the negative economic impact on you. Right. Yeah, and, and there are even programs in college specifically designed to keep students on a four-year track. You know, a lot of that has to do with the additional language requirements and, and core requirement degrees. I think one of the things that, you know, the college system needs a reworking of is believing students about their desire to specialize. You know, so a lot of the core requirements that we see simply are not germane to the vast majority of degrees that the market so, is willing so you, to pay you realize while we have those core requirements, it's because we have a centralized state law that says you have to. They can't, they can't get accreditation. They can't get money if they don't sign up to that. But you're right. That may not actually work for you. Right? My, my theory on a liberal arts degree, a liberal arts degree, which I have, you know, ought to simply be you have got 128 credit hours you know, to, to get out of school. You ought to basically get – and each major is basically 30 hours – you ought to have to get four majors. None of this like 50 hours plus of you know, random smattering of stuff. Just get four majors. You could actually fit four majors in to your college class uh, you know, curriculum. Did you realize? Think, think about it that way. All that extra stuff is keeping you from getting extra majors. Which would be more valuable to you? Getting an engineering degree to go with your history degree or getting a history degree plus two classes and a dozen different things? Right, yeah, and I think you're exactly right to talk about majors and those degrees being a potentially more important thing. But I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you one more thing. I got asked this at, at UTSA. Uh, well, the NAACP you know, chapter there hosted us, and one of the young ladies, she asked a question on this topic. She said, "Hey, it doesn't apply to me because I had parents and, and friends that taught me how to think through the degree I wanted in terms of what was going to be." Yeah, uh, employable when I got out. And uh, she said, but I got a lot of friends who they graduated and they can't get, they can't work in their field because their particular degree just isn't very much in demand. And nobody told us that, but they're carrying the same debt that I will. And, you know, it, it dawns on you. So if a history degree gets you, um, yeah, uh, and I'm making up numbers here, gets you 30 grand when you start and a Engineering degree gets you 50. Why exactly are they charging you the same amount of money for both of them? Right. That doesn't, I mean, that definitely does not seem to accommodate market principles. And, and you know, why don't they tell you, here's the deal? Or why don't they say, hey, we need to get you out on this history degree a year early so you can get into grad school, you know, or, or, or get that extra year of earning power? Or say, you know what? Um, this degree program, West, this is, this is harder to get a job in. It is absolutely crucial that you start getting internships in your freshman year, working in your field. Right. What, what, why, why not? Because all they're doing, all this, this good intentions of running you know, student loan money and making it easy to pay for college, 
all that value has accrued to college administration and profits. Mm. Yeah. And I'll give you one more example. I used to say this, I'll be sitting in a room and I'll, we'll have this conversation when we're up there, yeah, meeting with you at the, with, with the orders event. And yeah, uh, I look around and I say, all right, how many hours a day is this room used? And somebody will give me an answer that's basically like two. Right. Maybe four. And who do you think is paying for those other 22 or 20 hours? You are in your loans, full stop. Right? Yeah, right. if they were worried about this, that room would be ultra utilized. That's why you now see a lot of pro professional programs. Yeah, they'll be basically sitting in office buildings rented downtown. They put them near where the kids or students are. Yeah, and they run them professionally because they, they need to. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly, you know, something that college students look at when they're looking at their, you know, if, if I think you ask most students to do a review of their, you know, first two years of college and ask which classes they took were particularly germane to what they want to do. For instance, I want to be a lawyer and I have yet to take a logic class, uh, but I have <laughs> languished away in, you know, Arabic and, and other programs and not to say that those didn't have a value. Um, but they, they certainly don't, you know, pertain to what I, you know, say and as an 18 year old or a 19 year old now. Um, I, 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 I feel comfortable making that decision for myself. I think we're put in a system that doesn't, you know, believe that we are genuine or doesn't believe that we know what we want to do with our lives. And um, I'd, and I'd, be, I'd be totally okay with the system as it is, except for the fact that you're getting charged more and more and more and more. It will constrain, the debt you will carry will constrain which job you take, where you go to work, where you live, yeah, whether you can start a business. And your salary is not keeping up. So you're not getting, so I'm, I as a taxpayer am subsidizing, yeah, and subsidizing you and you're not getting the benefit of it. And that's what makes me so mad because you're the person I wanted to help. Right. Right? Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we're running, just out of time here, so I kind of want to get the last closing thoughts. Um, you're running in a, in a very nationally publicized or, you know, aware race. You've got, you know, Beto O'Rourke really galvanizing a lot on the left and potentially making this a, an, uh, an active seat or, a, or a, um, an open seat for a Democratic candidate to come in uh, from a pretty comfortable Texas seat. You know, we haven't elected a statewide um non-Republican since, I believe, 1980, 1983, something like that. Um, so if you could talk about the role of libertarian voters or the role of independent voters as they're making this decision, is it something that they should be pragmatic about? Look at, you know, who's close in the polls, look at who has a viable option and make it according to that, or do you believe that voters should, base, you know, base their vote and, and vote on who they most agree with and you know, just let that let the cards play out as they will. I, we've put out a bunch of our campaign comics, and we do campaign cartoons all the time. But yeah, we put about a bunch of them out on this topic. I I think yeah, the vast majority of voters are voting against who they're more afraid of. They're voting for, or they're voting for their second choice over their first, out of fear of their third. Yeah, and are not voting for what they believe in because yeah, they're basically voting according to how they think other people are voting. And that's not the way you ought to do it. We get bad results when you do that. Yeah, you know, it allows it allows the parties in power to game the system, and that's what we're that's what we need to stop. Yeah, you know, this race, 
it's going to be tight. And somehow Ted Cruz has managed to turn Texas purple in nine months, and no Republican's been able to do that in 30 years. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, Congressman O'Rourke's running a good campaign, but his policy set should not resonate or win in Texas. But right. you know, Ted Cruz has managed to run a campaign that's allowed that to happen. Um, that is opening an opportunity for libertarians, for in independent voters, for us to send a signal. But my voters are going to decide this race. They're going to decide. And the um, uh, Texas Monthly called it the unanswerable question. Are the voters that are unhappy with Ted Cruz and unhappy with Republicans, are they really going to swap over? Are they going to hold their nose and vote for him, stay home, or are they going to vote for the safe harbor libertarian Neil Dykeman? So I'm giving you an opportunity as a voter you know, to change the outcome of a race one way or the other and send a message that the middle matters again. Right. That's what I want you guys to do. Yeah, it's, uh, if I'm going to um, run in a race this expensive and this, and, and this noisy, you got to be able to make an impact. Well, the impact I'm making is a choice for you. If I wanted a safe way to get into power, I would have run as a Republican or a Democrat in a primary and safe district. I'm not doing that because my values cut across party lines, and you need a choice that's better than what you have. All righty, folks. This has been the Texas Order podcast. I have on the phone with me the Libertarian Party candidate for the Texas Senate race, Mr. Neil Dykeman. Mr. Dykeman, it's been an incredible pleasure. Thank you for sharing your time with me today, sharing your opinions and your thoughts and policies. I look forward to hosting you and Mike, Mark Tippett on Tuesday at um, the Texas Orders event. You can find the details of those events on Facebook at the Texas Orders, as well as go to our site, thetexasorder.com, to find the details of that event. Mr. Dykeman, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Absolutely. This has been a blast. Thanks for the time. All righty. Have a good one. Yeah, bye.